Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Very uh, pleased to be here today with Alicia Zhu, Vice President of Research and Scientific Affairs at Color Genomics. Um, Dr. Zhu is an active part of Color's market development team for population genomics and population research. And uh, Color has been um, really a leader and a groundbreaker in the area of genetic testing since they began and continues to be with a lot of interesting new initiatives this year, including a major part it has been announced they will play in the All of Us project. So, Alicia, welcome, and I have so many questions. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on. Yeah, I'm very pleased to have you. So, Let's, let's, because it's convenient, start at the beginning. Um, I remember when Color announced its arrival, it was with a, a general full s- panel for genetic susceptibility to cancer for $250. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, the typical price point was more than like 10 times that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we really, when we first launched in 2015, one of the major milestones that we wanted to be able to break was to make access to this type of testing more affordable and accessible. Um, and it, it really comes from a very personal place for color. So our co-founder and CEO, Afan Laraki, he is uh, an engineer by training. He actually has no scientific or medical background. Um, He was a product manager at Google and Twitter, which are large consumer technology companies, but really has nothing to do with healthcare. But he actually found out when he was an employee at Google that he is also a BRCA2 carrier. And that really changed, I think, the way he thought about himself and his health. It was something that he didn't really take action on right away, you know, back when he was working at Google. But I think it was something that motivated him then to um, found color. And also in the beginning, we very much were thinking about how do we make sure um, that this type of technology, you know, NGS sequencing and genetic testing for uh, genes related to hereditary cancer, how could we make that more affordable and accessible. And so from the beginning, that's been one of our major missions. Well, you clearly made it more accessible by making it more affordable. And I'm still actually somewhat confused as to how color could have, how how was that possible? (laughs) Yeah, it's a really great question. It was actually one of the uh, most frequently asked questions when we first launched. Um, I mean, I think it's a couple of things, right? One is that the test of sequencing itself has just just come down so drastically in the last decade. So, so just the raw cost of sequencing is already more affordable. Um, and you're seeing that reflected in, in many technologies and tests that are offered on the market. I think the other piece is that from the beginning, color was very uh, committed to the idea that um, in order to make this possible, we need to be able to do this at a very large scale. And so we actually uh, invested in a lot of innovations and technology that would make this really scalable and affordable at scale. So, for example, in our lab, from day one, we've actually had a robotics-driven lab. We've never actually had a lab where people were pipetting by hand. Uh, and the reason is because, ultimately, if you're going to scale, you want to make sure that you're doing it with the best instrumentation. Um, and instead of starting with people pipetting by hand and then eventually buying the robot when you reach the scale, we have actually bought the robot from the beginning and we architected our entire 
um, lab with the with the assumption that we were going to reach that scale. Um, and then instead of just using a bunch of machines that you can get um, off the shelf and then trying to sort of put them all together, we actually wrote our own custom software to actually pull all of these machines into a single um, into a single line. And that means that we wrote our own laboratory, uh, our, our own LIMS infrastructure, which is the uh, laboratory inventory management system. Um, and that's something that was really interesting coming as a biologist to this. Uh, I thought it was really strange and innovative to think of hiring a set of software engineers whose job it was to sort of program all the robots and program the lab. Um, because coming from the bio side of things, those are just things that you would buy off the shelf. And it's actually really interesting when you build it yourself, um, with engineers um, who know how to do that, um, it actually makes a lot of those things actually even more affordable. So it's, it's those kinds of investments that we've made from the beginning that have made the, uh, the tests um, much more affordable. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 terrific. And, and we bought the robot from the beginning is kind of an adorable motto for the company. But also <laughs> what it brings up for me uh, is when I hear that as a genetic counselor, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, my, my, my first instincts and that of a lot of genetic counselors was a certain level of suspicion because what doesn't mm-hmm. scale easily is, is people's time, right? And um, mm-hmm. the other thing that maybe is a surprising part of that is that you, you did have a, a commitment to genetic counseling as a part of this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's really quite interesting is um, when we think about um, taking it it back to 2015, actually 2014, before we even launched our first product, sort of the actual process that went into thinking about how do we make NGS sequencing clear uh, and cap NGS sequencing for genes related to hereditary cancer, um, how do we make that as affordable as possible while still keeping the best possible user experience? Um, what we did was we took the perspective of the participant and asked, what does the participant experience and how do we make sure that their experience is what we call an 11-star experience? So our, our head of product and design, Wendy McKinnon, she always has this philosophy of how do you make a participant experience an 11-star experience? And she comes with a background of having done design at um, Google, and she worked on the Google Maps product. So she talks a lot about how Google Maps, the way it works, and a lot of things at Google make things feel automagical, meaning that um, you know you use Google Maps because it tells you how you can get from point A to point B in the fastest way possible. It dynamically changes with you while you're on the road to make sure that it's updating you with the best and, and newest data about traffic, right? People use it because it's automagical, because it's easy, and, it's, and it actually makes their lives Automagical um, is a wonderful word for that. It is my single, <laughs> and I say this, I tell you, it is my single favorite technological innovation of my lifetime. Coming as someone who has <laughs> always lost her entire life, mm-hmm. and now I'm really mm-hmm. never lost for long. I am, I am lost briefly right, right. as I try to figure out what direction I'm supposed to start in, because that, you know... Right. That does mean. But anyway, yes, <laughs> automagical, that's exactly yeah. what it is. Right. Um, right. So. And and so so how do you apply that design principle to something like the process of getting genetic testing? And I think from there, the first question you ask is what is the human experience that you want your participant to experience? And we knew from the beginning that in order to ensure that the participant and the patient felt supported, the genetic counseling was going to be essential and really just a built-in part of that experience. So actually from the very beginning, genetic counselors 
um, were among the first employees to be hired at color. Um, sort of color when we first or uh, started being built out, um, you know, it was very much a, a marriage of technology background people and then biology background people and then uh, genetic counselors. And so we had kind of equal numbers of software engineers um, and designers from consumer technology, um, biologists and geneticists and genetic counselors. And so we built the whole experience with genetic counseling sort of embedded from the beginning because we thought about if you're a person sitting at home trying to understand, do you need a BRCA1 and 2 test? What are the questions that you have? How do we make you feel supported? And how do we do it in a software enabled way, but not in a sort of robotic automated way? So in um, the per- person comes to color and is interested in a cancer susceptibility screen, um, mm-hmm. the first part pre-test do they actually speak mm-hmm. with the genetic counselor or this is all done through the internet interface? Yeah. So right now it's mostly self-service through our web-based interface. Interface. So there's a set of videos, educational content, all available through our online web experience. There is always an option to call in and speak to a genetic counselor. And we do have some people who do call in. Um, and do that's you have our some, typical Do you have some experience. part of that process mm-hmm. that catches people that maybe... Uh, would have a family history that would make them eligible for mm-hmm. insurance-covered uh, testing, or that's mm-hmm. that's up to we, them? We, um, we don't flag for you if you should pursue insurance coverage, because it really depends on your insurance provider uh, whether or not you would have coverage. What we do flag for ourselves is we do collect a detailed health history from you while you're in the experience. And the the questions that we ask are specifically to be able to um, drive the risk modeling on the back end. So we actually run the Gale and Klaus breast cancer models on the back end. So we'll ask you the questions that we need in order to input into those models. If you come out as somebody who has elevated risk based off of those models, you actually get a different report back from us than if you have baseline risk. So even if you have a negative result with an elevated Gale score, we'll actually tell you that. We'll say, you don't have a genetic mutation in, one, in the genes that we sequenced, but you have family history that indicates that you have elevated risk just based off of your family history. And we actually give you different NCCN guidelines based off of your elevated risk because of family history. So you flag people's residual risk for them mm-hmm. automatically. We do. Yeah. And, and I uh, assume that if somebody has a positive result, that they mm-hmm. essentially automatically speak to a genetic counselor? Do I have that right? That's correct. If you have a positive result, you have to speak to one of our genetic counselors, and that's because we never want to have an experience where somebody has a positive result and they're opening it sort of in a completely uh, you know, solo, uh, unsupported way where it's this email that hits them and you know, they're doing 800 different things. You don't want someone, you know, walking into the gym, opening their email and realizing that they That's have a beer. That's not magical at all. <laughs> no, That's it's not. That's the reverse of magical. That is, That's yeah. terrifying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, I guess it's bad magical. There's such a thing as that. Yeah. Um, yes. Right. So that makes sense. So you must have sort of done a certain level of calculations and said, okay, of the rest, genetic counseling is available. It's not an extra charge, mm-hmm. right? I'm I'm sorry to knock on the no. to, be, to be asking about the money all the time, but the, it's a part of the story here right. with color is the money. Oh, absolutely! No, and, no, absolutely. And so, so, um, mm-hmm. 
So you figure you can say X percentage of people will test positive and will need a genetic counseling session. And by our estimates, Mm -hmm. this percentage will ask for one, although they're not required. And based on that, we can offer screening at this number. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, from from the beginning, when, before we launched, we really didn't know, right, how many people were going to opt into taking up, us up on the genetic counseling. Um, the, the, we offer genetic counseling as complimentary as part of our service. It's it's just included in the price. There's no additional charge for genetic counseling. Um, the philosophy behind that actually is not <laughs> revenue driven. It's 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 person driven. So actually, the way we think about it is, you actually have an unlimited number of sessions with that genetic counselor and a small percentage of people will call in, they'll speak to one of our GCs, then they'll think of a different question or they'll go talk to a family member and they'll come back to us and they'll ask, can I talk to you again? I want this time for my sister to be with me on the phone. Um, and we we accommodate for that. And we actually allow you to reschedule another session. We'll, we'll make sure that you speak to the same GC that you spoke to last time. Um, and and the, the reality of why we do that has nothing to do with the economics and has everything to do with the 11-star experience. Um, at the end of the day, you want people to walk away feeling like they had a great supported experience. Um, and, and if you're always sort of counting pennies around that, then you're not optimizing for the right thing. Well, this is lovely. This is this is lovely. I mean, this is sort of like um, idyllic models of healthcare where you, you know, you're not optimizing mm-hmm. for the right thing. That's great. I'm, I'm worried for you guys. You're 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 okay. You're staying <laughs> in business, you know. Yeah. yeah. And and um, uh, right. Well, I'm going to let you do a little bit more advertising here. Color has this nifty program <laughs> for people who have mm-hmm. a direct to consumer. Results is that still true? That mm-hmm. there's a fifty dollar, yes. you can confirm direct to consumer result. Um, That's correct. Yes. So, so let me let me let me backtrack a second. What? How many in the end of the people who had did not have a positive result? Do you know how what percentage took you up on genetic counseling? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd have to actually go and look at those numbers. I don't have them off the top of my head. It's certainly not everyone, right? It's so everyone who has a positive result does talk to a genetic counselor. I think for the people who have a negative result, who have an option to speak to a genetic counselor, uh, it's much lower uptake. I think it's it's you know in the low teens maybe or something like that. I I don't actually know. <laughs> so, um, but it's 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 somewhere in there. Um, probably like maybe ten percent or something like that. Um, and, uh, and then we have some percentage of people who are coming back and speaking to us multiple times because they want to speak to GC more than once. Now, I'm, I heard Alicia speak last month, and she mentioned that they also have a program for cascade screening, that anybody with a positive result on a cancer screen could uh, send an invitation to an unlimited number of relatives uh, who could then have screening themselves for $50 and genetic counseling. Mm-hmm. And you said at the time, before anybody asks how we make money on this, we don't. We lose money on this. It's mm-hmm. philosophical. And I think, like, I mean, I admire that. I really admire it, and it's great. It makes me nervous, though. I, I don't like it uh, when the things that are that are happening that are good are based on mm-hmm. um, somebody being willing to lose money because they mm-hmm. feel like it makes them fragile, right? Like, mm-hmm. what if that just that yeah. just goes away someday? I, I, I wish it was possible to do it and not lose money. 
Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the the question around it is the sustainability factor, right? I mean, if someone is is offering something in a philanthropic way, you always wonder what is the sustainability of that. Um, from our point of view, the way we think about it is this program, the family testing program, which is $50 testing for any first degree relative of anyone with a no mutation um, and $50 testing for anyone who got a direct-to-consumer result that they need a confirmation for. It really is sort of a philanthropic program that we run at Color. And the way that we keep that program alive is sort of by making sure that, you know, we are making money on, on other things. One of the, one of the things that um, probably we'll talk about for, for the All of Us Research Program as well, but um, when you think about genetic counseling and how do you think about making genetic counseling accessible and affordable, one of the things that we've done is we've taken a lot of the pieces of what a genetic counselor does in the day-to-day and tried to automate as many pieces of, the, of, of that process that is mostly a mundane sort of paperwork and make that something that the software does so that the genetic counselor can spend most of their time actually doing sort of the most important part of their job, which is the actual human part, right? Speaking to patients, helping them understand their results, contextualizing those results for them and their health. That is really the uniquely uh, valuable thing that a genetic counselor can do. And unfortunately right now, a lot of genetic counselors spend a lot of their time doing scheduling or charting or note-taking, building, um, building pedigrees, these are all things that then we've built software to automate to sort of then make each genetic counselor actually spend more of their time on direct patient care and less of their time on that indirect patient uh, uh, stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot of genetic counselors out there in my audience that are like going online and filling out uh, employment, uh, you know, like- <laughs> <laughs> it's like a big advertisement for working there. Um, so you've been doing this for, Color's been doing this for three and a half, four years. And uh-huh. uh, they have not gone out of business, which is nice. Uh, let, nope. Before we leave, yeah, yeah, let, me, let me just ask you one, one, one question, which is, so this remains, there are now other tests. The prices have come down all across the board. There's a, mm-hmm. a big variety and so on. But at this price point, are the residual risks of a negative test on color any higher than the other tests that you're familiar with for other major labs? So I, I, I know um, that the I know that the, mm-hmm. the positives I would feel are equally reliable. I get I, I'm not you know mm-hmm. so I'm asking the way the test is built is is there any level of deeper testing that goes on in other labs that charge more money? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's a couple of layers to that. One is sort of the gene selection, right? What are the genes that are part of the panel? Um, And certainly there are certain uh, cancers where there are other genes that you're going to want to be able to sequence to be more comprehensive and diagnostic um, than what we have on our hereditary cancer panel. Um, that's actually something we will flag for you. So if you, for example, tell us that you have a family history of thyroid cancer, um, we'll tell you that we don't have all the genes for thyroid cancer on our panel and that you should probably look to to get another test. Um, if you're talking about the actual sort of this, this if, if us versus another lab that's sequencing the exact same genes as us, you know, we are um, running a lab that is 
as good, if not better, than any other diagnostic testing lab out there. We are running an NGS panel. It's a 250 million read depth panel. Um, it goes up to a thousand uh, reads depth uh, for hard to cover regions. We are doing confirmatory testing on all of our actionable uh, findings. So we are doing Sanger or Array CGH or MLPA. We actually have an in-house uh, bioinformatics team who is constantly uh, actually improving our bioinformatics pipeline to ensure that um, every base pair is um, is reviewed and looked over in, in the highest quality way possible. So from, from that standpoint, I think we, I can confidently say we are um, among the best out there for, for this type of technology. So, so uh, with the experience that you had in the past year, it looks like, or a um, couple of years, um, that a number mm-hmm. of people interested in research collaborations have come to you and said, like, mm-hmm. okay, you, you have some experience doing this at scale, including counseling, so, or you've come to them. I don't really know. I don't know. I don't know what the, <laughs> the saga was. <laughs> sure. Um, but I, I do know there's a number of research projects you're involved with. Starting with, let's start mm-hmm. with the wisdom trial, because that was first a PCORI trial. Uh-huh. Um, you want to yeah. tell us all about a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. The wisdom trial is actually really quite interesting. It's being run uh, here in California out of the University of California campuses, as well as Stanford Health System uh, in the Midwest. Um, so the goal of the study, it's uh, PI'd by Dr. Laura Esslerman at UCSF. Um, it is the goal of the study is actually to think about how genetics can change the way we think about mammograms. Um, so the study is going to enroll a hundred thousand women over the course of five years, and these are all going to be women who don't have breast cancer, have not had breast cancer, who are between the ages of forty and seventy-five. So they are mammogram age. And then it's a randomized control trial where half of the women will be sent into the control arm, which is the annualized mammogram arm. So every woman will be asked to have an annual mammogram per the usual recommendations. Um, And then the other arm is the personalized arm. So if you're in the personalized arm of the study, you can actually receive a genetic test first through color. That genetic test will test for genes related to breast cancer, but also run a polygenic risk score for breast cancer um, and then based off of uh, if you have a Mendelian mutation, as well as your polygenic risk score, um, you'll be then uh, asked to either do mammograms more frequently or less frequently. So the majority of women who have a low polygenic score or a normal polygenic score and no Mendelian mutation will actually be told to have uh, mammograms every other year instead of every year. If you have increased risk because you have a monogenic mutation or a high polygenic risk score, then you'll be asked to do higher levels of screening. So obviously, if you have a BRCA1 mutation, you'd be asked to do much higher screening. You'd be doing MRIs in addition to mammograms, even considering mastectomy, for example. Um, If you have a high polygenic risk score, they might consider you to do uh, twice annual uh, mammograms instead or have an increased screening. And that's something that protocol is... uh, So there's mm -hmm. there's no never have any mammograms mammograms arm in this study. Is there? Because no, I would join <laughs> if you'd let me sign up for the never arm. <laughs> yeah. The idea is that most women uh, in the personalized arm, um, most women will actually uh, be told that they can have less frequent mammograms. So they could have them every other year instead of every year. Um, and the goal is then to, to, to actually track these women over a longitudinal period of time, five to 10 years, and actually look at how the outcomes of these uh, individuals 
manifested by either being the control arm, the annualized mammogram arm, or the personalized arm. You know, what I find very interesting about this is that one of the knocks, I think, on polygenic risk scores in theory is that Mm -hmm. the the health costs estimates based on polygenic risk scores Mm -hmm. involve doing what you're saying, renegotiating people's risk up and down so that some people get mm-hmm. more intervention and some people actually get less intervention. Mm-hmm. But my, my own experience with humans and with people mm-hmm. talking about polygenic risk scores is that people worry that it'll be much easier to adjust people up to a higher level of risk. Uh, mm-hmm. That will be a comfortable exercise for clinicians. Like, oh, this score says you're at higher risk. To actually take somebody who appears to be at a normal or elevated risk and bring them down, mm-hmm. I think is going to be a much less comfortable experience for clinicians. So mm-hmm. I, I'll i be very interested to see yeah. the results here because I think that's going to be a hard sell to people, honestly. And the economics of it makes so much more sense if you're going both directions. Right, right. I mean, at the end of the day, this is what personalized prevention is about, right? The idea is to not have a one-size-fits-all approach to everybody, but instead to think about all the risk factors that an individual has, whether that's genetics, uh, clinical risk factors, family history, environmental, social determinants of health. There's so many things that are impacting our risk for disease. If we can sort of get that magic eight ball that tells you exactly what your risk for a disease is based off of all of these risk factors, you know, that would be truly magical. And then you could really tailor a plan to each individual. I think the first step towards personalized prevention is trying to understand how genetics can help do that. And it does mean then that you should have some people who are actually um, getting less screening. I think what's really interesting about wisdom is part of the reason that this trial is so big and it is so long is because we understand that, right? And, and again, I say we, but it's not, it's not my study. It is uh, Laura Esserman's study. Um, but I think she is really trying to aspire towards, uh, you know, when she talks about it, she talks about it as a Framingham-like study, right? Something that's going to be a landmark study that will have a huge impact on the medical field and, uh, because it will be potentially changing guidelines. And and, and the, the, the alteration in risk their alteration in risk is is that um, mm-hmm. is that include lifestyle factors, weight, things like that. In addition, or is it just adjusted using the uh, color panel and the polygenic risk score? Is it a purely genetics adjustment, or or do they look at other factors? They are looking at other factors. So they are looking at uh, other things like breast density as well, uh, and sort of other. Uh, factors that that play into, for example, how predictive a mammogram is going to be for a person to begin with. Um, So there's actually a bunch of other uh, factors that they are taking into account. Mm -hmm. But not lifestyle factors? Uh, I don't believe they are currently looking at lifestyle. Yeah. Personal history, yes, but not lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to save time to get to all of us because I'm extremely interested in this. Uh, There was a recent announcement that Color had won a big contract with NIH to build out the genetic counseling side of the All of Us mm-hmm. program, which has to be quite substantial since All of Us has this major commitment to giving back results to participants. What mm-hmm. part of that is Color going to be involved in simply putting together the telegenetic counseling resource, mm-hmm. or are you also involved in deciding what goes out? That's 
That's a great question. Um, so a color is actually involved in the All of Us Research Program in a couple of different components. Um, one of them is to build the genetic counseling research for the program, a resource for the program. We are actually also part of the genome centers. So taking a big step back, the All of Us program is trying to recruit 1 million participants over the course of five years, uh, actually 10 years, sorry. Uh, and uh, the goal is to actually uh, recruit individuals in, follow them longitudinally, and create a very large open access data resource for the research community uh, to be able to do research on, uh, on this very large cohort. Um, and part of that is that everybody who is in all of us, all participants, will have a whole genome sequence uh, generated as well as a genotyping microarray, and that this data will be made available for research. But what's pretty unique about all of us is unlike other large genetic research databases, all of us has been committed from the beginning to actually return results back to participants. Um, and so when they were thinking about how do you do return results back to participants, uh, the program actually decided that they should include genetic counseling as part of that, which I think uh, actually is such a great precedent for, for this type of program to set. Uh, and so when they decided that they wanted to include genetic counseling, um, they did put out uh, an RF, uh, RFA, a request for uh, um, applications, um, and they were asking for somebody who was going to be able to deliver genetic counseling back to the participants in all of us, but to do it in this distributed way where they're currently enrolling from all 50 states across different socioeconomic statuses, across all different race and ethnicities. They wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, there was going to be genetic counseling available to everyone. Um, and so we really took it on ourselves to think about how do we not just think about the human resource side of that, right? How do you make sure you have enough genetic counselors to do that? But really, how do you build a software stack that allows you to deliver that counseling in a, uh, in a controlled way back to one, all 1 million participants so that you have the same um, high quality uh, genetic counseling from the first participant all the way through to the 1 millionth participant. And it really struck us that this was something that we had already built, right? This is something that we had to build for our, for our clinical service because of the fact that um, we already make our tests available across the United States and because we already are working with a lot of large uh, healthcare organizations, employers, uh, and researchers to deliver genetic counseling across the United States. And so we felt like in many ways that um, it, was, it was actually a pretty good fit uh, for the program and for color, for color to play this role. Um, so we're very, very excited and honored to be the genetic counseling resource for the All of Us Research Program. Well, the geography shouldn't be too much of a challenge. I mean, there's been study after study showing that doing this by phone, and there's so many technological options. I when uh, mm -hmm. when my my one of my daughter's friends graduated from college, there people were mm -hmm. bemoaning being apart, and she's like, "It doesn't matter unless you go to Amish college. <laughs> Everyone can contact anyone anytime. You know, it's like it's true. That's mm -hmm. the the geography sh sh shouldn't be an issue. The scale's an issue." And I have to say, you know, I, I might be asking for a friend, like, like you hiring? <laughs> you <know? laughs> What's going That's on? That's a great question. Pe yeah. People ask us that um, all the time. Um, so right now we're not in the phase of actually returning results yet. So the program, the All of Us program is currently uh, recruiting. Uh, we have a lot of samples that are biobanked. And we are just beginning the process of actually generating genetic data off of those samples. Um, and so we haven't actually started returning results yet. Um, had, but um, when we do start returning... Mm -hmm. Sorry, I had a discussion recently, and I, I understand the first set of results 
will be something that resembles ACMG 59. So, and mm-hmm. not that it's necessarily 59, but the, the point is mm-hmm. that it will be known variants to familiar diseases. We're uh-huh. giving back yeah. a lot of information that we're comfortable with. And I would think that, okay, getting up to scale is, is probably going to be an issue of, um, you know, like manpower, woman power, mm-hmm. probably for the most part, let's be honest about this, <laughs> but also manpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the bigger challenges, I would think, lay ahead um, as you start giving back mm-hmm. different types of information. Like I know that all of us had been talking about giving back pharmacogenetic information, and then the FDA recently stepped mm-hmm. in and said in general that they want to put the kibosh on pharmacogenetic information getting given back except in very specific situations, right? They were unhappy with some of the pharmacogenetic panels, uh, which they saw as uh, not having enough of an evidence base. So Mm -hmm. I I assume, I'm just assuming here, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume Mm -hmm. that color would be very much interested in staying compliant with the latest directions from the (laughs) FDA. Um, Mm -hmm. So that would require a sort of a nimbleness. Like, how do you have that nimbleness Mm -hmm. when you're doing something at enormous scale? No, it's a great question. It's actually something that the program has thought a lot about and takes very seriously. So you're, you're, you're absolutely right. The first version of return of results back to participants and what is the current plan is to return the ACMG59 gene list. So that is the first set of 59 genes. It's, it's the exact same 59 genes actually as the ACMG gene list. Um, and the goal is to make that available to participants with, of course, genetic counseling for end- individuals who have a positive result. Um, there is a, a expectation from the program and a commitment to potentially return other types of results over time. PGX has certainly been one of the early areas that the program has talked about. Um, and the program has been very sort of public and clear about the fact that they are now actually directly engaging with the FDA to understand how they could do that. Um, in, in addition, there are other genetic areas that have been discussed but haven't been committed to. And, you know, they could be other Mendelian disorders, carrier screening. It could be uh, polygenic risk scores. I think there's a lot of potential. I think the reason that the program has decided to do this is because they recognize that this is a 10-year-long program and that genetics currently is an exploding field where sort of the clinical validity and the clinical utility of new genes and novel applications of genetics is sort of multiplying daily. And so I think they don't want to say as a program that they, they're going to commit to just one thing from the beginning and and stick to that for the full 10-year longitudinal study, but they, they want it to be dynamic. They want it to be useful and they want it to be something that the participants find that they get value out of, uh, which is why they've sort of set it up in a way that they could potentially add new different report types in the future. Well, there's been a lot of people involved with the program saying that ultimately what they plan to do is offer anybody that wants back their entire raw data file. Would that include Mm -hmm. genetic counseling? And how does one offer genetic counseling for a raw data file? Like, can people yeah. come back to you it's, with Prometheus results? Like, have you thought yeah. at all about where your responsibilities yeah. end and um, and where they yeah. should end and what can be done responsibly? I, has that come up in your discussion? Yeah. It's so interesting, right? Because I think that the program from the beginning has had a commitment 
to um, making the, the data potentially available one day. I think that that comes from a very principled place, which is that the participants are giving of themselves to this program and volunteering not only their time, but their biospecimen and their data for this program. And as part of that, the program is committed to making sure that the participant gets something back. And, and the whole idea of genetic and genetic, genetic information, genetic data, I think they're, they want to be on the side that says, you own your, your genetic data, you own your genetic information. So if we have a copy of it, you should be able to have a copy of it. That's the principled stance. From there, then, there's the actual implementation. And I think that's where the program is currently still making decisions, right? There hasn't been a clear decision yet around when and how that data would be returned to individuals. And I think when that decision is made, I think all of the things that you've brought up will need to be taken into account. I think you're absolutely right. There are a lot of sort of uh, irresponsible ways that people can use that data. And we definitely don't want to be um, potentially harming participants in the program. So it is an area of active discussion right now for the program on how do you stick to this principle of making sure people get value back while also making sure that uh, we're doing it in the most responsible way. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there has always been this tension. That's why there's, in you know, if you get to the, mm-hmm. the classic vocabulary of medical ethics and you're talking about beneficence and non-maleficence, right? So uh, mm-hmm. there might be a, a, a degree of beneficence in giving back somebody's data, but you also have to worry about whether you're doing them harm. So mm-hmm. when current standards, mm-hmm. when current uh, tests show, when, sorry, when current studies show that uh, mm-hmm. this sort of raw data, the information people pull from it or think they pull from it is wrong 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. To me, I'm like, well, mm-hmm. that's like Halloween candy. It's nice, but not when there's razor mm-hmm. blades in it, right? So, <laughs> Yeah. No, you're totally right. I think this is one of the things that the program, um, one of the things that I've actually been uh, sort of really uh, surprised, pleasantly surprised about the program is just how many sort of things that they thought of and how many different people are involved. It, it truly is a national level program. And, um, and they have put together an omics committee, uh, which is a set of uh, uh, researchers, faculty across the United States who are sort of thinking about, you know, how do you do omics on this population, genomics first, but potentially one day other types of omics. They've put together a scientific advisory board, and they've put together a scientific panel, actually, um, who's thinking about what is the science that you want to be doing. And on the other side, they've put together a participant advocacy panel. So this is actually a group of participants um, who are in all of us. Um, so they are actual live participants in all of us who are also advising the program on what do they want, you know, how do they want it to be presented to them and what types of considerations should be made. Um, so there are a lot of different stakeholders. And um, what I've really admired about the program is how they have tried to make sure that they are hearing everybody's point of view. They're very, very familiar with sort of the potential harms of releasing raw data back to individuals and having those individuals misuse that data uh, by feeding it into some kind of online tool or just misinterpreting what they're reading on the internet. Uh, so it's something that they're definitely taking into consideration. Uh, and and it's not something that is going to be made available to participants anytime soon until those sort of safeguards and thoughts are put into that process. Uh, it is mm-hmm. a... Um... It is a laudable study on a lot of grounds, and mm-hmm. whilst, like everybody else, whenever I hear a laudable study, I want to like be a cynic and be like, let me just find out what's <laughs> wrong. At the moment, I'm being mm-hmm. overwhelmed with nostalgia for a, a point in time when 
<laughs> when people in government, yeah. people in government could do a good thing, you know? Um, yeah. So when do you expect that you will be up and running? Mm-hmm. Like when does all of us give back its first result on the ACMG 59? And I have to like ding for the trademark. I, I should have put a little <laughs> bell to ring every time I say that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So the goal right now is to be able to return results uh, to the first participants um, sometime in 2020, hopefully by mid-year. That's the goal. Um, and of course, that uh, re- that has to uh, be coordinated through many different parties. So, um, you know, all the samples have to go and be sequenced at the genome centers, then all of that has to be um, interpreted, and then it has to be sent eventually back to participants and genetic counselors and all of these things. So the goal is to be able to do that first interaction sometime in 2020. Oh, cool. Just don't, just don't let the actual government find out what the government is doing, okay? <laughs> because they're definitely <laughs> no, going like, to come in and like sell it to the highest bidder <laughs> or something. Something terrible is going to happen. Anyway, <laughs> shh, I mean, nobody listen. I think one of the... Yeah, no, I, I think one of the things that I have been so uh, sort of appreciative of now that I've become a part of the All of Us Research Program is how much responsibility they are taking. The NIH, you know, Francis Collins at the head of that, but also the whole All of Us program, which is currently being uh, led by Eric Dishman. Um, they are really thinking about it from that point of view of, you know, how do we serve our participants? And I, I, it's rare for me to see a research study that is so deeply committed to making sure that the participants are not just being uh, sort of used as study subjects, but actually a partner in the process. And I think that's why the program has, has these sort of very laudable goals, is because they've, they've thought of the participants as partners rather than as subjects. Absolutely. Uh, so we're running to the end of our time. And there was one other thing I wanted to get to, as I thought it was interesting, yet another uh, initiative that you're involved with, which is that um, since, since I don't know, since the date, you, you're, you have partnered with the Broad Institute to use mm-hmm. a polygenic risk for, for cardiovascular disease that they developed mm-hmm. and give it back to color clients. So that, mm-hmm. that's available now? It's been yeah, recent, that's a right? good question. Super recent. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So we've been working very closely with Amit Kira and Sig Kathreson, both at MGH and the Broad Institute. Um, Sig actually recently just became a CEO. Yeah, of yeah, company, yeah. No, but... Sig's, Sig's, been on, <laughs> Sig's been on the program, and he's he started Verve, which is a, another sort of interesting. Yes, thing. but let's not exactly. discuss that. Too many things. But um, <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, so, so, so we've been working so with that, you're, Amit and Sig. You're using that and giving back uh, polygenic risk scores, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, what? Um, yeah. How's that done? How much explanation does it require? Where do you send people mm-hmm. with high scores? What's the story on it? Yeah, that's a great question. So we are making the coronary artery disease score that Amit and Sig have published, and we're making that available to color clients in our research study. So the study is called the Genetic Score Study. It's actually available to anybody who is a color client. Um, so it's not something, it's not uh, a commercially available product. You can't just buy a polygenic risk score from color. It's something that is a research study that we're conducting on people who have already had their sequencing done at color and want to enroll in this study. So you have to pro- proactively 
ask to be enrolled. Uh, and what it what it is is it's a study uh, where we're actually looking at how people's behavior um, changes around getting this information, and and really what people's curiosity is to actually get this information. So one of the things we're actually studying is how many people actually want it. Um, and so what we're doing is. Um, it's a research study that you would uh, actively consent into. So you go through a full IRB and then there's a set of pre-score questions that you have to answer. So there's a set of questions that we ask about your lifestyle and behavior as it pertains to your heart health, uh, as well as sort of basic baseline health information about you. Uh, and then after you've finished that survey, we um, show you your genetic score uh, based off of uh, that public published score. And then we actually follow you longitudinally um, for uh, for a while. So you'll actually get a follow-on survey three months, six months, and one year after you get this result, um, where we're going to ask you again about those behaviors, as well as your baseline health metrics, to see if any of those things have changed since you've gotten these results back. And then also just understand about how your attitudes towards genetics uh, may be changing or shifting based off of uh, getting access to this type of information. And... Is it complicated to explain to people? Because my take on that score is, <laughs> is that it's only in the very highest and lowest percentiles, really, that it mm-hmm. creates clinically useful information. Um, so mm-hmm. most people yeah. are getting back a number that's not very meaningful. Is there a way to explain that to people? Yeah, what's really interesting, you're absolutely right, right? The way that this score works is that there's a giant normal distribution that's created, and the majority of people are in the middle of that distribution. And so what we actually use it as is a moment to actually engage you in all of the other things that you told us. So you'll, because we've asked you about your behavior, so your diet, exercise, uh, smoking, uh, these kinds of things we've asked you about, we'll actually surface to you other things based off of those questions that you should be changing about your lifestyle just to make sure you, you could be living a healthier lifestyle. So for the majority of people who are in the middle of the distribution, um, you're right, there's really not much to say. Um, and instead, we actually take that moment to, to give you a bunch of information about, you know, here, you know, what's the most recent sort of recommendations and guidelines about guide, uh, about uh, uh, diet and exercise, about smoking, <laughs> yeah, which, of course, yeah, you know, everybody yes. should stop smoking. Yes, diet and exercise. <laughs> yes, no smoking. Got yes. it. Yeah. Um, yes. and, and, and but so mm-hmm. I saw a press release on this and you said and it was clearly a, a line that you had to say, right? Like, don't use this to make any medical decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what type of decisions one would use being told you're in the top 5% of a polygenic risk score for mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease that are technically not medical decisions. Like you wouldn't use them to pick your wall color or, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. car. I know. mean, I think... No, no, you're absolutely right. I think the reason we actually started with uh, coronary artery disease is this is a disease phenotype in which lifestyle choices can make a huge difference, right? So this is something that, um, you know, Amit and Sig have published in their 2016 New England Journal of Medicine paper where they showed actually the same person with the same genetic risk, so the same polygenic risk score, they can have um, drastically different absolute risk for disease based off of what type of lifestyle choices they make. So if somebody has really, really poor lifestyle choices, they don't eat well, they don't exercise, and they're smoking all the time, um, and they have a low polygenic risk score, they actually are as much 
have as much risk as somebody who has high polygenic risk, but actually has a very favorable lifestyle. So it is one of those things where lifestyle can change your overall risk for disease, even if you have sort of, quote unquote, the cards stacked against you uh, from a polygenic risk standpoint. And that's why it was really because of that, that we decided that, you know, for for this uh, for this study, as we're trying to understand, you know, how people think about polygenic risk and, and, and their appetite for for uh, for getting polygenic risk scores, um, this was a moment to also influence people's lifestyle behaviors. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tricky thing about polygenic risk scores, actually, from a counseling point of view, because if they're used to supplement exist what we know about existing risk factors, they can be mm-hmm. a big help. And if they instead mm-hmm. substitute for what we know about existing risks, mm-hmm. they could actually really harm people, right? If, if people made the mistake mm-hmm. of thinking, I can smoke all I want and eat all the donuts I want and mm-hmm. do all the stuff because I have a low polygenic mm-hmm. risk score, that number could actually be harmful mm-hmm. for people. It's one of the tricky things about this sort of population stratification yes. information is that it's really, it has to be contextualized to be useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, No, I totally agree. You know, so I'm I think actually one of the really doing, and I also mm-hmm. it's 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 a it's a tough moment. I'll be interested to see how much uh, uptake you have of it, and what the mm-hmm. answers is, what the what your people's responses are. Maybe maybe not the yeah. entirely representative population, mm-hmm. since they're kind of early adopters who are getting themselves to genetic testing um, outside mm-hmm. of of typical areas outside of typical. I mean, I, I'd assume that most of these people are not sent by their doctor for genetic testing for another reason. Yeah, what's really interesting about polygenic risk is that you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's just another data input, right, to your overall clinical risk for disease. And, and it needs to be contextualized with all the other things that are in your life, including environmental factors, lifestyle factors, uh, clinical risk factors, family history, et cetera. Um, and so... I think what's really interesting and and the way I really think about what is the utility of polygenic risk scores is that it is another data signal that does have value to tell you about your potential risk for disease, but it does need to be used in in the context of all of these other things. I think one of the areas that the field is actively developing in, and I think will be the real utility of polygenic risk scores ultimately, is actually how do you add this genetic signal in with all of those other signals, to your point, and can we generate sort of more of like a universal risk score that takes into account all of those factors, including your genetics, uh, but that really then is able to give you a more accurate uh, sort of prediction of what your risk for disease is. I think that's 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 the reality I think that most of us are trying to um, trying to achieve. And I do think that, um, you know, with with actual programs like the All of Us program, where we're going to be generating this type of data, it is an opportunity for us to potentially actually make strides towards that direction. Yeah, I, I hope so. I'm have always been concerned about something that I call gene washing. Now, I feel like someone from Mean Girls mm-hmm. is going to be like, you know, when they say, stop trying to make fetch happen, like stop trying to make gene washing happen. <laughs> but I have been trying to make gene washing happen as a word to suggest mm-hmm. the thing where you get a genetic piece of information and it wipes out everything else. Mm-hmm. So I do worry about that. And, and, uh, and I think it's a complication, but you know, as mm-hmm. we said in an earlier conversation, um, you said like, you, you have to start by giving the information back and see where it goes. So I guess that's, mm-hmm. I guess that's step one. And mm-hmm. we yeah. 
And we are running out of time, which I told you was going to happen because there were so many <laughs> things I wanted to ask you about. So maybe once you um, get started uh, giving back results in all of us, you'll come back on and tell us how it's going um, with all of these various initiatives uh, that are running through color. Yeah, I would love to. This has been really, really fun. So thank you so much for having me. I have also had a lot of fun. And let me take this opportunity to say to everybody out there, eat vegetables, (laughs) (laughs) eat less meat, exercise more, don't do what I do, don't have so much sugar, um, I don't know what else. Go go to my lo- website, <laughs> BeagleHanda.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Laura Hersher. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.